Well, thank you again. Thanks, Josh, for inviting me, and just great to be here. I was at Warrigal Community Church uh, last weekend, and they send their greetings. I'm doing the tour around some uh, community churches, it turns out, this month. April 17, 1975, a friend of mine was 11 years old, and it was the day the Khmer Rouge came into Cambodia and tricked people by knocking on the doors and saying, uh, there's going to be a bombing, you'd better leave now, don't take anything with you, you need to escape. And so uh, people left, understanding that they were leaving their homes for a couple of days. It became evident weeks into this march out of the city that it wasn't for a couple of days. It was one of the horror stories of the last few decades. Noit ended up separated from her family. That was their custom and moved the father and the mother to different places, the children and so on. She ended up in northwest Cambodia, really fighting for her life. She lived in a little um, thing they called long houses, a little wooden hut with about 25 other people her age. The, the hut would be about as long as from here to that wall there. And um, and they would work by day. They would get education by the government called Angkor, who described itself, the government, as your parents. You don't need any human parents. The government is your parents. And they did re-education of these children. They worked them hard. They gave them silly labor projects like digging canals to try and run water up hills. And, and they would have half a cup of rice to share between them in these longhouses, about 20, uh, 20 young people. It was horrible, horrible times. A few years into this, Noit is out on her day labor task and she hears a sound that she hadn't heard for years since she was a child. She was now a teenager. And the sound was a machine, a truck. Truck comes along, she hides behind a bush like you would as a 13, 14 year old and it's a bit obvious because she's peeking out and the, the uh, truck has a Vietnamese soldier in it. The Vietnamese soldier says just a few words. She says, you're free, you can go home now. There's Noit, emaciated physically, no shoes on her feet, threadbare clothes, not knowing if any of her family have survived with one announcement. The government has changed. The system that you're under has changed. The oppression that you're in has changed. You're free. You can go home now. What a declaration. Along the way, she miraculously met her sister. She was reconnected to several members of her family. I often think of that story for a whole number of reasons. One of the key ones being that to me is the best description of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I have ever come across. A declaration that everything has changed. That the heavenly picture is different now. There's an end to evil. There's an end to suffering. It's been bookmarked on this earth because Jesus Christ has lived, died and been resurrected. The story says that you're free. You can go home now. 
The reality is, though, walking it out is something different. doesn't mean you magically have shoes appear. It's a long journey, and it's a, it's a journey that we're invited into for our own lives and for the lives of our neighbours around them. In Luke 4.19, Jesus says this, 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He's quoting Isaiah 61, and I know that you've been working through Isaiah as a church. Jesus lifts these themes or these words out of Isaiah to describe his ministry. It's connected to those themes of righteousness and justice and connected to those ideas of setting things back to the way that they were originally intended. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Every aspect of Jesus' life looked like good news to the poor. My first question this morning, what about yours? What aspects of your life look like good news to the poor? Of course, then we ask the question, well, who are the poor? And we talk about things like spiritually poor, which is true. And we talk about things like our humility of spirit as as something that positions us as poor before Jesus. The reality is, though, what Jesus is talking about here is the poor. The word, uh, the Greek word tokos, may, it gives a word picture to the original hearers. And the word picture is one crouching down beggarly in a beggar's position. The idea is someone that doesn't have the means on their own to stand up, to get on with life, to be empowered. The significance of the video that I showed at the beginning is that children there, part of the compassion program, are being encouraged to dream for their future. But I had more time, would have interviewed these kids on the front row to ask them what their dreams are for their future. I'm sure all of them would have started thinking about it even now. The reality of poverty is that the dream for the future is, will I make it through today and will we have dinner? That's about as far ahead as is realistic or necessary to dream. Could we make it another day? That's the poor. And Jesus is good news to the poor. So when they're 12 and up, the compassion program, we start them dreaming. What do you think you could be when you're older? Cricketer. No way. Amazing. A teacher, a doctor. There's all sorts of things like we would hear from children in our society. The opposite of poverty is not money. The opposite of poverty is freedom. And freedom comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's spiritual, but it's also enormously practical. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, as we heard so well read together. Today I wanted to bounce out from the beginning of Jesus' ministry and his quoting of Isaiah and then include this part as well, the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry 
and his descriptions of the priorities of the time to come. The Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels are with him. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. There's the king. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Thank you very much. That really isn't a 21st century image. I imagine Gippsland sheep and annoying goats. That's not the picture that Jesus is using. And if we climb into it, it will help us to actually understand some of the things that he's saying here. This is um, Middle Eastern goats. These are Middle Eastern sheep and goats on a hill far away. Kind of hard to know the difference. I'll bet with my glasses on, Australian sheep and goats, I could pick out from that hill over there. But that's not the case in a Middle Eastern herd. They look really similar. And actually, a good herdsman, a good businessman, would run them together as a mixed herd because it's the best effective way of running a business. The sheep eat the delicate parts of the grass in a fairly arid area, and the goats eat everything bar the rocks on the site. The goats breed more quickly, and their milk comes into production more quickly as well. And so they're a great fast dollar, and then the sheep are higher price, but they take longer to grow. And so a herdsman in the Middle East in Jesus' time be just a classic image of a herdsman running a mixed herd. And you need to keep them in a balance. Not that I've ever done it, but I know the theory. The theory is about one-third sheep and two... Sorry, the other way around. One-third goats and two-thirds sheep should keep the herd just right to to make the most of the um, grass and the whatever it is that's in in production that you're grazing and um but it means that you've got to be pairing them out every three or six months to keep that ratio about right it's a common idea to see sheep and goats mixed together first point jesus says we're a mixed herd we're all mixed in and that's okay but it's not easy to tell the difference because in that image Let me go back. I can drive backwards. In that image, you've got to look close to see the characteristics that are there. You can't just do it from a hillside. Let's keep going. He will separate the the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. A pretty standard procedure, but one that requires looking close at the characteristics of the uh, creature. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Standard procedure. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, that kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. Or what are those differentiating characteristics? I don't know about you, but I think of those kind of Nobel Prize winning characteristics of people. You think, wow, 
That person's a world changer. I think of big programs, big activities. I think of um, Compassion's program. You know, 8,000 churches that we're in partnership in, in, in places in poverty. Millions of children being helped and beyond that, families that are impacted and, and so on and so forth. I think in terms of big things, and there's probably a lie somewhere sitting in the back of my head about God that maybe he's thinking about big things too. Well, thank God for Jesus who explains his kingdom and makes it so practical and so earthy that it's hard to miss. He says, I'm like a shepherd that's going to come and have a look at the herd and look for some really easy characteristics that would be hard to miss when you're up close but very difficult to see when you're far away. This is not world-changing stuff. This is something that you would have to be very close to your life to notice these most important priorities of mine. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. Got a friend who says, if it's not practical, it's probably not spiritual. No, I love that phrase because I think I've got a little bit of Gnosticism in my head where I think of spiritual things. I think of theology. I think of abstract kind of ideas. And I think if I can join myself to that, if I can think right, then I'll be right with God and close to him. But he gives us a different way of thinking, an earthy, grounded way of thinking, which is probably a purer type of theology. A guy called Dave Andrews says this, If you know anything at all about God's grace, it means not only receiving it for yourself, but also extending it to others, reaching out to others who have been treated disgracefully. Part of our role as ambassadors of Jesus, part of our place in his kingdom of being people that announce and bring good news is bringing grace to people who have been treated disgracefully. The image here is intimate, It's personal, it's close up, it's enormously practical. What are the spiritual criteria for looking more like Jesus today than we did yesterday? If you came across someone who's hungry, fed them. Came across someone who's thirsty, gave them a drink. If you came across someone that was socially isolated, you included them. It's the way that you treat other people. In his name. Of course, I'm assuming that you've all read this story before and you know where it's heading. If we could take a a moment to climb into a first century listener's point of view. The kind of people that Jesus was telling this story to. The kind of people that had asked, can you explain to us about the end times? And Could you maybe just mark it in your calendar so we know when to get ready? 
He says, I'm not going to give you a mark in your calendar. I'm telling you to be ready. And he gives those stories in sequence. And we get here to the sheep and the goats. And here's a story where he's talking about the king coming back. You can imagine being a first century hearer and thinking, maybe in the back of your mind, this first appearance of the king has been somewhat disappointing because he didn't take Jerusalem by storm. He didn't, um, he didn't become the political leader that we've been praying for, that my grandpa said it was time to come, that we've been waiting for for generations. If I was truly honest, I can imagine a first century hearer thinking, they would be saying, thank God that the king is coming like a real king, not like one that's really confused us no end with the way that he sees the world and everything in it. And so that king, says this, when was it that you, um, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we do that stuff for you? This thing was just something that's done on the side. We expect Jesus to say, well, because I was observing it from afar. Maybe we expect Jesus to say, well, because you ticked the boxes of righteousness that I was looking for from your life. But he doesn't. He he doesn't other the people that are in poverty. He doesn't other the people that are crouching down in that beggarly position. He doesn't other them when he's talking about bringing good news to the poor. What he does is he says, when you did that for them. He did it for me. What a crazy picture to a first century listener. A king who didn't have more than enough. A king who didn't have all the rights and privileges of of kingliness in a kingdom. A king who was poor, beggarly, destitute. This would have been the moment in the story where it would have drawn a gasp. I know we didn't this morning, probably COVID restrictions, we didn't gasp, but can you imagine that being so shocking that it changes your life? That's my prayer for us this morning. That that line there is so shocking that it would adjust every waking hour of our life. Coming closer to people in poverty is equal to coming closer to Jesus. What do you mean? What do I do? Shane Claiborne writes in one of his books that the biggest problem for us in the West is not a compassion problem. He uses that word. He says it's a proximity problem. It's not that we don't care about people in extreme poverty. It's that we don't know them. That, to me, is one of the great things about compassion's work, connecting person to a person, a child to a child, a church to a church overseas. Moving towards someone in poverty is moving closer to Jesus. Jesus, of course, hasn't come up with those criteria just on a whim Those criteria we've seen prophesied for generations before him. 
And it has echoes of a situation that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 58. My Bible, the NIV, titles Isaiah 58, True Fasting. It's because the community has had a big problem. They've been following all of their religious rules. They've been doing all the spiritual things that they know to do. They've been praying. They've been fasting even. They've been following their spiritual disciplines and still they're whinging. God hasn't answered their prayers. God seems distant. Why is God so far away if we're doing all this stuff? It's got echoes of the kind of content that Jesus draws from when he talks about Matthew 25 because Isaiah brings God's words as a word of correction and as a promise. Is this not the kind of fasting or religion that I've chosen? Loosen chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. Set the oppressed free to break every yoke. The opposite of poverty is not riches. It's freedom. And the good news is freedom to all of us. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to see, when you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Our mission to the world is to bring good news in every kind of way, physical and spiritual, social, emotional, economic, All of that joined together is the good news that brings the gift of freedom. There's a promise coming, and I'll use that to pray for us in just a minute. I want to finish, before I finish off, I do want to genuinely invite you to consider every and any area of your life and how you respond to Jesus' most practical commission to look for him in the eyes of the stranger and the one in poverty. First time I went to Southeast Asia, the first time I experienced uh, meeting someone living in extreme poverty. I was sitting there, it was around this time, I was starting to get hungry and I was thinking, gosh, this area in the jungle here, beautiful huts, would be lovely to have a barbecue. I hope we're going to have a barbecue here. That's what I was thinking. And um, and we sit down, there's a little fire outside the front of this little hut in the middle of sort of nowhere in the jungle. And and they're talking a language that I don't understand. I'm thinking about my stomach. The translator leans over to me and says, oh, they're just talking about how they're hungry. They haven't eaten for six weeks. A little bit more again in a language I didn't understand. They, the translator leans over again. He said, They are eating the leaves off that tree over there. It has no nutritional value, but it helps keep the hunger pains away. So the issue is the government closed the market. Police got involved. Some reason that's detached from them, but it means they've got nowhere to sell their goods or trade anymore. They just haven't had any money and no access to actually buy or trade anything now for some time. I kept talking again a language I didn't understand and leans over to me again and says, they're just explaining that this morning a human trafficker came around, six kids in that family. And they offered 
50 US dollars for one of my kids. And here's a mother sitting there and explaining in her language a most awful decision that she'd been wrestling with all morning until we arrived, Craig thinking about his stomach, her thinking, which child would I sell so that my, uh, so my other kids could live? That's the horror of what the, the Greek word chokos, the poor, beggarly, crouched down, needing a hand up. And that story and that experience gives me the courage to ask boldly to you this morning, would you consider, if your circumstances allowed, sponsoring a child? There's all sorts of children that we have profiles for on the table in the foyer. They are from Indonesia, and um, and you'll see on a map on that profile exactly where they're at. Some of them weren't all that enamoured by having their photo taken, you'll see, but I think that's more shyness than anything else. Their names on the front, if I can just quickly explain some practical things, $48 a month to sponsor, that amount's tax deductible. The way we say it is that for the price of a coffee a day, you could sponsor three children. And so we encourage not only thinking of it as a... As an answer through money, money's part of it, but time and time again as I meet these young adults who've grown up in the Compassion Program, they say, thank you for sponsoring us, but please write letters, please. And the reason for that is our letters of encouragement actually help them to learn to dream beyond the entrapment of that area that they are isolated in poverty in. Someone from outside my space, my world, believed in me enough, loved me enough to write to me and care about me. That transforms lives. We say the love of Jesus, the encouragement of a sponsor and the work of a local church releases children from poverty in Jesus' name. On the back, if that was you this morning, just briefly, there's a QR code. We all know how to operate them now. This QR code is unique to the profile. My kids are well-versed in how to help you with this. What we'd ask is to us, each of these profiles represents a child living in extreme poverty. And so we'd prefer that if you wanted to take the profile away to think about it, you're very welcome to, but please leave us with your phone number so that we can contact you and follow it up. If you're not able to sponsor, you've thought about it, consider it with family or whatever, then that means we can go to another church and ask, try and find a sponsor for that child. Child sponsorship through any metric helps. I've got to admit, when I was first married, we're actually living around in the same postcode, Yolambi. You'd be part of a small minority in Australia who actually know where Yulambi is because we get to share a postcode, right? But uh, we're at Yulambi. Eliza went to Yulambi Preschool there. And back in those days, we sponsored a child through compassion. And I was so enamoured by the idea of transforming this girl's life. Her name was Irma. And... and we did it for a few years and we'd pray and we'd write letters and we dreamed one day of maybe meeting her. And after about four years, she dropped out of the program and and we were told her family had moved away. And I was gutted. 
so disappointed that I didn't sponsor again for quite some time. Of course, at that time, I didn't realize how um, transient people are who are living in poverty. If you're working like they do in Indonesia, the working poor, 60 US dollars a month, two people with jobs, and you can get one for 61 dollars a month, of course you'd move. My question is to myself, and I'm just wrapping up here, have I got it in me to have a vision for my life that exhibits the characteristics of Jesus, even if it doesn't work out how I hope. What's the criteria he's assessing me on? Is it what happens to my sponsor child? Or is it how I treat my sponsor child, my neighbor? I'm so grateful that we were there that day, meeting this, uh, th- meeting this lady, getting a glimpse into how heartbreaking extreme poverty is. We were able to connect her with help. She was able to continue with all of the children that she'd birthed in her family. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're free. You can go home now. And that's what Isaiah 51, 58 is talking about. It's what Isaiah 61 is announcing. And it's the call of Jesus' ministry. Um, hang on, sorry, I forgot this bit. If uh, We have credit card, direct debit or check giving options and um, let us know if you're taking away, please write. Can we pray? And then I'm going to show you a, a video of a child whose life has been impacted by receiving a sponsor for the first time. Let's pray. King Jesus, you are king of good news. You're king of the whole world. And we're coming into the reality of what that means as children in the kingdom. Would you help us today to come closer to people in need? Because we know that that is directly related to coming closer to you. And Jesus, we love you. Amen.